Good morning. Last week we finished off chapter 2 of the Gospel of Luke in our verse-by-verse study of the Gospel. Uh, And with that we wrapped up really the setting of the scene for what's to follow for the rest of Luke's Gospel. Chapters 1 and 2 were used to give us really the background information about the births of two of the major uh, players in the Gospel accounts, John the Baptist and then obviously our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. At the end of chapter 2, we were given a treasured memory of Jesus that occurred when he was 12 years old, and we were told that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. Now, as we begin chapter 3, we need to note and understand that we're going to be fast-forwarding about 20 years as Luke looks to continue his narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And he's going to start telling us about the life and ministry of Jesus by first telling us about Jesus's forerunner, John the Baptist, and the ministry that he did out in the desert. And so our text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. And the title of our study is A Voice in the Wilderness. Okay, A Voice in the Wilderness. We're going to be looking at the ministry of of John the Baptist. And so with that, I'm going to ask you guys to one last time rise to your feet in honor of the Lord and his word. I'm going to be reading from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading from a different translation, I want to encourage you to follow along. And if you don't have a Bible, a number of the chairs underneath them have Bibles if you'd like to follow along as well. Okay? So, John, excuse me, Luke chapter 3 writing about John the Baptist, verse 1. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Verse 3. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Verse 7. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And so the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And so he said to them, 
Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. We're going to stop right there. Um, Originally, the plan was to go all the way to verse 20. As I was putting it together, we're stopping at 14. So that's where we're going to be. That's the word of the Lord for us today. Let's pray and ask God to lead and guide us through his word. Lord, we thank you for this Father's Day. We thank you for the fathers that are here represented, uh, for the fathers that aren't with us. We pray blessings upon them. Be with them today. May their day be a special one, filled with your presence and your leading and guiding. Lord, I do ask that you would lead and guide us. Here, Lord, as we've opened up your word, I pray in like manner that our hearts, that our minds, that our ears may be open to all that your spirit desires to say to us today. Lord, lead us and guide us in your word and through your word. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. Our text this morning in verses 1 and 2 start out giving us the history surrounding John the Baptist's public ministry. Luke gives us uh, the names of several different leaders. And he starts off with some political leaders, starting off with the current Roman emperor at the time, Tiberius Caesar, telling us that John's ministry was dated in the 15th year of his reign. Now, from history, we know that Tiberius Caesar, also known as Tiberius Caesar Augustus, was the second emperor of Rome, and that his rule lasted from the year 14 AD to the year 37 AD. And so the 15th year would put us at about the year 28 or 29 AD. Now, not only does Luke mention the Roman emperor, but he also lists the then governor of Judea, Pontius Pilate. Now, as we make our way through the gospel account, Pontius Pilate's name will resurface a few more times, and we'll take a closer in-depth look at him at that time. We're also told of three tetrarchs that ruled during that time. Now, a tetrarch is one who ruled over one-fourth of a province or kingdom. When Herod the Great died... He requested that his kingdom be divided up into fourths and given to three of his sons and one of his daughters. And by this time, only two of the four descendants of Herod continued to rule over their tetrarch. We had Herod Antipas, who was tetrarch of Galilee, which is where Jesus' earthly ministry took place, or most of it at least. Then there's Herod Antipas' brother, Philip who was tetrarch of Iturea and the region of Trachonitis. This was an area east of the Jordan River and north of the Sea of Galilee. The third tetrarch mentioned doesn't seem to be of the relation to Herod, uh, and not much is known about him, a man by the name of Lysanias, who was tetrarch of Abilene, an area even further north in Syria, north of Damascus. Now, Not only does Luke mention the political leaders and rulers of that day, he also mentions the religious leaders and rulers, telling us that both Annas and Caiaphas were high priests at the time. Now, this is actually a little bit uh, weird, a little bit different, because the usual custom was to have one high priest at a time, and they were to serve for life. 
And, uh, and so this was a little bit odd, a little bit different. But the Romans, they had come in and they had churned this religious spiritual position into a pos- political position, basically, into a, an office that people would serve in. And, and the high priest, well, they got to control and operate the merchandising within the court of the women there in the temple. And it could be a very lucrative position as different deals and favors were often negotiated behind closed doors. And so we know historically that Annas, he served as high priest from the year 680 to 14 AD. But he was removed by Roman officials and replaced with someone else. The position of high priest actually passed through a few others before Caiaphas, Annas's son-in-law, was appointed the position in the year 18 AD. Though Caiaphas was the high priest that was recognized and put in place by the Roman authorities, most of the Jews in the land, they still recognized Annas as the high priest. Annas was the father-in-law of uh, Caiaphas, and he was really seen as the one with all the power. We kind of see that play out in the trial of Jesus. When we get there and we look at the crucifixion, they will bring Jesus to Annas first and get his opinion and what to do before they would bring him to Caiaphas. Now, I love how Luke sets the scene here with this historical accounting of who is in power at key positions at this time in history. You see, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the life and ministry of Jesus, isn't some fairy tale story that begins once upon a time in a land far, far away, in a kingdom on the other side of, you know, the hills. There once was a man who came uh, by God, and he died for the sins of the people, and everyone lived happily ever after. Amen. You see, that's not the gospel. Okay? That's not what Christianity is about. Okay? This is real life. Real history. Okay? History really is his story. I mean, we count history based upon the timing of when Jesus Christ came into this world as a babe. Christianity isn't some religion that is based upon the fancy tales of mythical gods and demigods like Zeus and Poseidon and Apollo and Jupiter and Mercury and Hercules. Christianity isn't based upon stories and myths and folklores and legends. This is real history. Jesus was a real person that you can read about in history books, not just in the Bible. Historical uh, figures, Josephus and other historians, have written about Jesus Christ and his life in the first century and all these crazy things that were happening at this time. And I just love how Luke helps establish this truth. The life and ministry of Jesus Christ took place in the early first century. It is a historical fact, okay? And it can't be argued sensibly, I will say. Because there are some people that will try to come out and say, ah, Jesus never really lived. There really never was anybody. It's all made up. And it's like, really? you, You look really foolish when you try to present that kind of an argument because history is quite clear. This really happened. This 
is real life, real history. Well, before I move on, I think it's worth noting something very important here about what Luke tells us in verse 2. Luke mentions seven different leaders, seven different prominent men of that day, seven people who had power, seven people who had influence, who had great authority and could make things happen. And yet, we're told that the Lord chose to send his word to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. God could have chosen anyone. He could have used one of those seven powerful, influential, and prominent men to send message of his word, but he didn't. Instead, he chose a man whom we last read of in chapter 1 that was spending most of his days living out in the deserts. Okay? Matthew's gospel tells us that John the Baptist was a, he was a bit weird. Okay? He, he, we're told that he clothed himself with camel's hair. And, and with a leather belt around his waist. And then he ate locusts and wild honey for food. Okay, Let's be honest here. John the Baptist, he was a bit of a, a weirdo. Okay, We would say, that guy's weird. Um, if you were going to pick someone to be the forerunner for the very Son of God, this probably wouldn't be your selection. Okay, Because we would pick someone with power, someone with connections, Someone of great authority that can make things happen. We wouldn't pick some weird guy living out in the desert all by himself, eating locusts and wild honey and dressed up in camel's hair. We wouldn't do that. But that is what I love about the Lord and how he operates. 1 Corinthians tells us that God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised, okay, like men wearing camel's hair and eating locusts. Okay? God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are that no flesh should glory in His presence. God doesn't choose us based upon how wonderful we are or how powerful we are, or how influential we are. God chooses flawed people like you and me to bring honor and glory to His name, simply because He loves us, and He wants to use us to impact the world around us, so that when the world sees God do something amazing, they won't be tempted to look at the vessel and with which God used and think of them as something special, but they would know and realize that it was a genuine work of God. You know, maybe you're here this morning and you've allowed yourself to think, I'm nobody important. I'm not powerful or influential. I don't have a great following okay, or, or a great platform to speak from. I really don't have all that much to offer, and you've come to the conclusion that God can't use someone like you, let me tell you, you are the perfect candidate for God to do something amazing through. You see, God chooses the foolish things of this world to get His work done, and that makes us all qualified. If God can use a wanderer that lived out in the desert ate locust and wild honey, and wore a camel's hair suit, 
I'm sure that he could use people like you and me. Let's continue in our text. Take a look at verses 3 through 6 with me. He says, And he, speaking of John the Baptist, he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. We'll stop there. Back in chapter 1, we read about the kind of ministry that John the Baptist would have. Okay, the angel Gabriel told Zacharias, the priest uh, and the father of John the Baptist, that his son would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he told Zacharias how John would go before the Lord and in the spirit and in the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so that was before he was even born. Then after he was born, Zacharias prophesied how John would be called the prophet of the highest and that he would be, go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God with which the day spring on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And so what we have here really in verses 3 through 6 is the beginning of John's public ministry. We already knew what his ministry was going to be like, but here we have the fulfillment of that prophetic word spoken over him before he was even born, even after he was born as a babe. And we see here that the main emphasis of John's ministry was upon him preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. The word preaching here, it speaks of making a public herald, okay, of a, a declaration of important news, a public announcement. Jo John was going around making public service announcements, warning the people of the judgment to come and their need to repent from their sinful ways. You know, the message of repentance is a very important one. Unfortunately, it is one that doesn't get talked about very often. Because frankly, people simply don't want to hear that kind of message. But that didn't hinder John from delivering it. The Greek word used for repentance, it's the word metanoia. metanoia. It's derived from two different words, meta, which means a change in condition, and noeo, which speaks of the mind. And so putting them together, we understand that repentance, it has to do with a change in mind, a change in your way of thinking. It implies a new mind, a new way of thinking, a new attitude toward life and, and God. And the Old, or excuse me, the New Testament, it has a lot to say about repentance. It is a message that not only John the Baptist preached, but also one that Jesus Christ himself preached as well. For Jesus would also declare, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But what really is repentance? We understand that it has to do with a change in mind, but what else? I think 2 Corinthians chapter 7 gives us a clear understanding of what repentance is all about. 
You see, Paul wrote several letters to the church in Corinth. And in some of those letters, he rebuked them. And he called them to repent from their sin. And this is how he followed up one of those letters in 2 Corinthians. He wrote, For even if I made you sorry with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle made you sorry, though only for a while. Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We see from this writing of Paul's that repentance isn't just about feeling bad. It isn't just feeling sorry or being sorrowful. The word sorrow means grief or distress, and it has actually a theologically neutral connotation. We see from Paul here that there are two different types of sorrow. Godly sorrow, and then there's the sorrow of the world. Godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. We also understand that it isn't just about regret. Paul used that word a few different times as well. It speaks of having sorrow over the consequences, but not necessarily over the acts. You see, people can regret that they did something, not because they understand that it was wrong and sinful, but basically because they got caught and they don't like the consequences that have come with getting caught. It's more than likely that if this person didn't get caught doing what they were doing, that they would continue keep on doing it, and they would still be doing it because they haven't been caught yet, and they haven't felt the sting of the consequences of their choices. See, there are a lot of people who regret doing things, but that doesn't mean that they have experienced godly sorrow that leads to repentance. You see, repentance is a change in mind that leads to a change in behavior. Because we've truly changed our mind about something, it will reveal itself in a changed way of living. The person who has truly repented and been saved, they have received the forgiveness of sins and have a new mind. They have a new heart. This person thinks differently and they live differently. And this is what repentance is about. This is what John the Baptist was calling people to. John called the people to a baptism of repentance. Now, John's baptism isn't the same as a Christian's baptism. I want to make sure you understand that difference. When a Christian gets baptized, okay, when you and I, when you are baptized, if you've never been baptized, I'd love to baptize you. If that's something that interests you, I'll just throw that out there. Let me know. Come talk to me. But when a Christian gets baptized, they are identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is an outward demonstration of your inner belief that Jesus is Lord and Savior of of your life, okay? John's baptism... It wasn't a way to show belief in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because those things hadn't even taken place yet. Okay? John's baptism, it was symbolic, okay, though, just as our baptism is symbolic. But John's symbolized repentance. Okay? If you really were truly repentant, John wanted you to demonstrate that repentance 
through water baptism. A ceremonial cleansing that symbolized a, a spiritual cleansing from your sin. Now, this was a very big deal for John to be calling Jews to be water baptized. Okay, water baptism was usually something that was reserved for Gentiles that wanted to convert to Judaism. Those were proselytes. Gentiles, we know they were considered unclean. Okay? And because they were unclean, for them to take part in the faith of Judaism, they needed to first be ceremonially cleansed from their sin. And oftentimes this would be done through water baptism. Jews were not usually baptized because they believed that they were already clean because of the God's covenant relationship with them. They didn't feel the need to be baptized because they didn't see themselves as unclean like Gentiles. And so John's call for both Jews and Gentiles alike to be baptized was quite radical. He was basically telling Jews that they were just as unclean as the Gentiles because they too were just as sinful and in need of repentance. And now John's call, though, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins was all part of him fulfilling the prophetic calling upon his life. He was the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight, as the prophet Isaiah prophesied back in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Now, interestingly enough, all four gospel writers quote Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all quote Isaiah 43 when speaking about the ministry of John the Baptist. But only Luke quotes more than verse 3. Luke continues from verse 3 and quotes verse 4 and 5 of Isaiah chapter 40 as well. And this is what Isaiah chapter 40 verse 4 and 5 reads. It says, Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I think it is very interesting and it's a very important reason that Luke quotes not only verse 3, but also verses 4 and 5. There is an emphasis that Luke is driving home as he writes this narrative of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Remember that Luke is primarily writing to a Gentile audience. Okay? And he wanted to let people know that John's call to repentance For the remission of sins was not just for the Jews. John was not called just to call the Jews to repentance, but all flesh. For Isaiah speaks of how all flesh shall see the glory of the Lord. Luke writes it as all flesh shall see the salvation of God. You see, the gospel message of Jesus Christ, the message of repentance that John preached, they are both for all people, for all flesh for the Jew and for the Gentile. And we've noted this a few times already in Luke's gospel, already a couple times in the first two chapters. And we will note it several more times because it is a major emphasis of Luke's gospel, okay? That the message of the gospel is for everyone, that it is for all flesh, not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles alike. We all must repent and put our faith in Jesus Christ in order to receive the remission of sins and to secure our place in heaven with the Lord. 
Listen, there is no way to the Father but through faith in the Son. Okay? And that is the same for all flesh. Okay? All mankind. And Luke is going to reemphasize this over and over again. Well, let's continue looking in our next section, verses 7 through 9. Luke writes, Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Wow. Hey. John, here we see uh, the boldness of John's public ministry. We do know from the other gospel accounts that John was directing these harsh uh, uh, words towards the many Pharisees and Sadducees that were making their way out to see what was going on in the desert. See, the religious elite, they were not coming out to be baptized or to listen to or submit themselves to the preaching and teaching of John the Baptist. We know that they didn't believe in John the Baptist, nor his message, and that they did not get baptized by him. Jesus later on will actually call them out for this, and he will use their disdain for John as a way of trapping them in their own questioning and reasoning. John wasn't about tickling people's ears and telling them what they wanted to hear. Quite the contrary. He was bold. Okay, and he didn't mind telling people, even prominent people, in fact, that they were sinners in need of repentance. He called out people, and he called them to bear fruit worthy of repentance. And he wasn't going to let them try and use that old, well, Abraham is my father bit that many of the Jews tried to rely upon. You see, the Jews, they liked to lean upon the fact that they were descendants of Abraham, and as such, they were privy to a special relationship, a special standing with the Lord based upon the covenant God had established with Abraham. But that covenant was one that was based upon faith. The Jews failed to make this connection, and they felt like their racial line, okay, their genealogy, was enough to secure their right standing with the Lord. They basically believed their connection to Abraham was all they needed in order to maintain a right standing with the Lord. But they were wrong, and that is what John is telling them here. They couldn't rely upon the faith of their father. They needed to have genuine, personal faith. Listen, faith isn't something that is inherited. You're not a Christian. Well, because my mom was a Christian and my grandma was a Christian and my great-great-grandma was a Christian and I was just born a Christian. You know, that's who I am. No, that's not who you are. Christianity is not inherited. It is something that every single person must choose to exercise himself or herself. You must exercise faith. It's not something that's handed down or inherited. Everyone must have their own. And John's message was that each person must prove their faith by their actions. You see, John would agree with what James wrote. James wrote, Faith by itself, if it does not have works, 
is dead. James would even use Abraham as an example of one who put their faith into action. He wrote in James chapter 2, But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works? And by works faith was made perfect, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Abraham had faith in God, and his faith was seen in his actions. You know, today, there are many who have all sorts of different responses to those who would call them to repentance, to those who may call them to bear fruit worthy of repentance. You know, they may not say, well, I have Abraham as my father. But they may say something like, I'm saved by grace. I can do whatever I want. Or, Or don't judge me. God knows my heart. Or, you know, we're all just sinners. And these things are true. We are saved by grace. God does know our hearts. And we are all just sinners. But if we are trying to use those truths as excuses for our sin and reasons for why we don't need to repent, then we are acting like the Jews of the first century. We're trying to use a convenient and misapplied truth to justify ourselves and to justify our sin. And it's wrong. It's wrong. And just as John wouldn't stand for it, the Lord won't either. We will all stand before the Lord one day and we will give an account for our actions, for our repentance or our lack thereof. John says that the axe is laid to the root and every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Fire speaks of judgment. I believe John is speaking of eternal judgment in a place called hell, a place described as everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Those who do not repent and bear fruit worthy of repentance will be cut off and cast into the eternal fire of hell. This is serious stuff here. Eternity is at stake. And John was more concerned with getting people saved than getting people to like him. He was more concerned with people not populating hell than he was with being popular. There were a lot of people that didn't like John's message. But for those that responded to it, I believe they were eternally grateful. And so it is with the gospel that we preach. You see, I'd rather tell it to you straight and have you not like me than tell you a lie and let you believe that God is okay with sin. Because He's not. And we live in a world today that loves to champion sin and loves to celebrate sin and encourages us all to celebrate it. It's even crept into the church. We need to understand that our actions are, are important, okay? that our walk needs to line up with our talk. We can't just say we're Christians and yet believe and live and act like everyone else in the world. There needs to be a difference. 
There needs to be genuine repentance. There needs to be fruit in our lives that is worthy of repentance. Let's continue. Verse 10 says, So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do then? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? And so he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. In this section, certain people came to John, and they wanted to know specifically what that would look like for them. What would fruit worthy of repentance look like? We understand what you're saying, John. We understand we need to bear fruit that's worthy of repentance. What would that look like for me in my particular situation? And I love how John responds because in this section we see the simplicity of John's public ministry and the simplicity of John's message. Different groups of people came up to John and they asked him specifically, what shall we do then? We recognize what you're saying. We understand that we need to change. What do we need to do? To the first group, he responded, He who had two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Basically, John was saying, Be nice. Show compassion. If you have extra, share it with others. Be generous with your excess. Share with those who are in need. So simple, right? We teach this stuff in our toddler class, okay? Share some of those toys, Johnny, okay? Let some of the other kids play with some of those toys you have. It really is simple, right? To the second group, a a group of tax collectors, he responded, collect no more than what's appointed for you. Basically, be honest. Put in an honest day's work. You see, tax collectors were required to bring in a, a certain amount. They had a quota that they were to meet, but they were actually free to charge extra and they were permitted to keep any extra over that which was required. And so tax collectors were notorious for charging people more than what they really owed. They took advantage of other people and basically stole from them. John doesn't tell them not to be tax collectors. Okay? He simply says, hey, be honest about what you're doing. Collect what is fair and what is appointed, and no more than that. So again, we see, very simple. Be honest. Be fair in your work. To the third group, a group of soldiers, uh, another despised group of people, John answered to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. That word translated intimidate, here it literally means to shake thoroughly. Okay, it's speaking about the idea of shaking someone down for money. Uh, a shakedown, okay, if you're not familiar with the terminology, it's an illegal or deceitful attempt to get money from someone. Okay, it's speaking about things um, like swindling someone or blackmailing someone. John tells us the soldiers that they tells the soldiers that they were not to do so, not to use their authority and power for ill-gotten gains. He also told them not to accuse falsely. And again, the idea is that some soldiers would make false accusations or act upon false charges in order to cheat them out of fines or to extort them of their money. 
very similar idea here to that of the tax collectors. Basically, he tells them, don't abuse your power, and again, be fair and be honest in your job. And lastly, he exhorted them to be content with their wages. And so there you have it, okay? Be nice. Share with others. Be honest and fair. Don't abuse your power. Be content. These are the things that John was looking for from some of these specific groups that came asking what fruit worthy of repentance would look like and they needed and what they needed to do. And again, I love how simple John's answers are. These are things that we teach our kids from early on in their childhood. Be nice, share with others, be honest, be fair, don't pick on your little brother or sister, okay? Don't abuse your power. Uh, be content with what you have, right? I bring this up because I believe far too often people have it in their mind that God is looking for them to do some great, big, huge deed in order to prove their repentance, in order to prove their love. Listen, God isn't looking for us to do anything supernatural. He is God, not us. As our Heavenly Father, He wants us to behave as His children. He wants us to treat one another with compassion, to look out for one another rather than take advantage of one another. You know, it reminds me of the message shared in Micah chapter 6. Micah, speaking on behalf of the Lord, he reminds the people of what they are to do. Micah wrote, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. This is what God wants from us as we live our life of faith, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. You see, God has already done all the heavy heavy lifting. He has taken care of the big things. He's dealt with our sin problem. When Jesus died upon the cross, he cried out, It is finished. It's done. He did it. We just need to live a simple life of faith to show that we have repented, that we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, the fruit that God is looking for us to bear, it can actually be summed up. It is so simple that it can be summed up in one word. Love. Love. Galatians teaches us that the fruit of the Spirit is love. Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. All the law and the commandments can be summed up in this one word as well. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. True repentance is seen in our love for the Lord. It is seen in our love for one another. This is what John was looking for. And this is what God wants from us as well. That we would love God and that we would love others. And with this, God, our Heavenly Father, is well pleased. You know, originally I had hoped to get through verse 20 
cover all of John the Baptist's public ministry, uh, but decided to cut it short and leave some of it for us next weekend, Lord willing. I think what we have here is sufficient for us. In our text, we were reminded of how God loves to choose the foolish things of this world. He chose John the Baptist, a, a very peculiar guy, to say the least, a guy you and I probably wouldn't have ever chosen, but a guy who would be faithful to the calling upon his life to prepare the way for the Lord. We looked at John's message of repentance and noted how repentance isn't just about something that we feel. Okay? It isn't merely an emotional response. It is a change in mind that leads to a change in action. We also noted that the boldness of John's ministry and how he wasn't afraid to speak truth into people's lives. He called upon people to bear fruit in their lives. And we noted the simplicity of that calling, how the fruit that God is most looking for in us is love. May we love our Heavenly Father well, and may we show His love to the world around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And we thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist, Lord, one who was not ashamed to declare truth, one who was not ashamed to call people to repentance. And Lord, I pray that we will be a, a, like John, that we would not be afraid to share the gospel message, Lord, to share that sin is sin, and Lord, that you paid a hefty price for the penalty of our sins, that we might have forgiveness of sins. Lord, I pray that we might proclaim that message to the world around us. And Lord, I pray that we would understand, Lord, that you're not looking for some great monumental feat out of us. But Lord, you desire just simple obedience, desire for us to love you and to love those around us. And so Holy Spirit, we pray, fill us with your love that we might share it with those around us. Lead and guide us, we ask and pray. In Jesus' name, amen.